Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in African American Studies. I'm your host, Adam McNeil. On today's podcast, I'm chopping it up with Dr. Elena E. Roberts, author of I've Been Here All the While, Black Freedom on Native Land, published by the University of Pennsylvania Press. In our conversation, we discuss Dr. Roberts' personal connection to Native land in Oklahoma, how she interprets the active debate about whether Black folks can actually be settlers, and what excites her most about the work she does, and much, much more. Enjoy the conversation, family. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Roberts. How are you doing today? Hello, I'm pretty good. Good, good, good. So, uh, you know, it's been a great, great time uh, getting us to the interview here over the last year. Um, and also over the course of uh, our time getting on the recording, too. So uh, there's there's that part, too. Uh, so before we dive into your text, um, can you talk to us about the your amazing book's Genesis story? How, how do we get to this moment here today with this amazing book? I've been here all the while, Black Freedom on Native Land. Well, the story of the book is a story of myself, of my search for identity, my family history, what I want to do with my life. Um, I really didn't know going into college that uh, I wanted to be a professor. I knew I wanted to write. Um, but when I took a class, uh, one of the assignments was to write about my family history and kind of explore that. Um, and I didn't really know much about it. I knew that my family was from Oklahoma, my paternal family. And I knew that my dad talked about Native people as being part of our ancestors. Um, but it was really through that class assignment and through realizing just how kind of unique and different my family histories from kind of the traditional African-American historical narrative that I kind of realized like, wow, I can really do something with my life. I can really kind of share this story with uh, historians as well as kind of the broader country and world. And so that the title, I've been here all the while, really kind of comes from my discovery of the importance of land to people like my ancestors. And so one of the first things I did was go into genealogical records and see my great-great-grandmother talking about land and talking about why it was so important to her to stay in this space of what is today Oklahoma. And it's all an amazing story within the frame of the book. Um, And and it's also great because one of the parts I found the most fascinating uh, about your book was I love hearing about people's stories. One of the things I love about doing the podcast is getting the opportunity to learn more about the people behind the book. But the difference with your book is you are in the, you're, you're, you as the person and also your family history is also weaved um, throughout the text too. So it provides its own um, amazing uh, peppering of context and, and, uh, migration forced and otherwise um, throughout the text that really, uh, I think, uh, challenges a lot of our um, either assumptions or, or, or what we think as fact in terms of 
black people in in the broader diaspora and our and our connection with um the colonial project i think is one of the best ways that i can uh formulate that um so so with that said one of the uh interesting i think one of the best uh pieces to kind of pull from the text to talk about uh, quickly um is found on page two and this is uh in excuse me this is in your words it is this connection between north american slavery black freedom and settler colonialism that constitutes the nucleus of this book end quote so Dr. Roberts, at what point in the development of your project did the connection between these three concepts become clear? Well, if any of your listeners have seen me give a virtual book talk, then they probably already know what I'm going to say. I'm going to point to an <laughs> event where I saw Mae Jemison speak um, when I was a postdoc at the Richard Center at Penn State. Um, I knew that my dissertation was going to talk about Black freedom and slavery, and this is something that my dissertation had focused on. I knew the book would obviously involve that, um, but I was still trying to figure out what kind of framework can I add uh, to make this, uh, you know, more helpful to the broader field? Like, what can I kind of speak on um, that people are thinking about and talking about? And when I saw May Jemison talk about Martian colonization and the need for kind of Americans to pull together to kind of go on this great endeavor that's going to help science and help us all, uh, just kind of the the realization that she as a black woman was talking about colonization and what it means historically when black people have involved been involved and involved themselves in this system, it was kind of like, wow, like this is what I've been thinking about for so long, but not in this context. And that's kind of what makes my family's story interesting and what makes all of these kind of different um, stories of African-Americans coming into Indian territory and the broader West interesting to me is the interactions that they then have with native people, the interactions that they have in which they often spout ideas about colonization and native people that are very similar to white people. And that was surprising to me. And so I said, you know, how can I kind of create a picture where people see that people of color can also involve themselves in settler colonialism and not just as victims, but as people who are trying to uplift themselves through kind of integrating themselves in this system, or as I call it, in this process. So that event that you mentioned with Mae Jemison, that was, um, you said, in your postdoc year. So so um, going a little off script here. So what was the project like uh, prior to that in terms of like your dissertation work and and, and the, the changes that I guess you had to make? Um, and I guess to take it all the way back is um, I've been here all the while. What you turned from your dissertation into the book um, as well? Yes. So the dissertation is called Chickasaw Freed People at the Crossroads of Reconstruction. And that was kind of more narrowly focused on my family and what it means that these are Black people emancipated, not by, uh, you know, the Emancipation Proclamation or the 13th Amendment, but by treaty. And what it means that instead of kind of looking for uh, the ability to attain political rights, as we're kind of told, is this important narrative in African-American history. They instead wanted land, and land was more important to them, and staying in this space uh, in which their community and their kinship ties uh, remained. And moving into 
the book, as I often like tell graduate students that I talk to, you know, your dissertation is great. Like it's, it's a labor of love, right? But it is for your dissertation committee and it's for you to kind of dive deep into these sources. But when you look at the broader view of how you're going to make this a book, uh, I think that you should be looking to how you can use your field to speak to other fields. And so for me, it was how can I use this rather unique story of Black people who wanted land and obtained land to illuminate ideas about um, people of other races and why land was important to them and why this particular space of Indian territory ended up being very valuable and very important symbolically and also economically and socially. But see, this this is a good information that I'm glad that folks are getting um, because, you know, as someone who's uh, soon entering the uh, dissertation writing phase, you know, it, it's it's always good to understand that, like, what you're writing is what you're writing for a particular, literally, a, like a handful of people versus what you hope that first book um, will be. And so, you know, thanks for the, you know, thanks for the motivation here on this uh, a Friday, uh, late October. You know, I'm from Florida. It's starting to get cold. I'm on a, I'm on a fellowship here in Ann Arbor. It's cold outside. I'm, you know, I shifted rooms because it's so cold in the in the den. Uh, so, so I, I really appreciate you with, for 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 that um, for that focus there, um, and and to 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 stay on the um settler colonial point for a moment that that you had that you had mentioned. Um, can you actually explain the specific role settler colonialism plays in your text? Um, and also because I, I don't want to surmise that everyone knows what settler colonialism even is. So can you also um, define uh, what you think, or actually more so, can you define what settler colonialism is for the audience? Because I'll, I'll be honest, my mom listens to this and other folks in my family, I don't necessarily know if, if they uh, uh, understand truly the, the kind of uh, form of settler colonialism that you may be talking about in this book that I think my mom would actually really enjoy. So, Definitely. Um, I mean, and that was a struggle. Like, am I going to kind of use this term that I know some people look at and are very puzzled and maybe they put the book down? Um, you know, you have to do certain things for your first book. But uh, true, true. settler colonialism is essentially, you know, a concept that has been written about by many people in many different ways. Uh, the fathers of kind of the modern field would be Patrick Wolf and Lorenzo Veracini both of whom look at settler colonialism as a structure of domination, essentially, that involves white Europeans replacing an indigenous population somewhere. And so you can look at you know, uh, the Americas, Australia, New Zealand, et cetera. Um, and that replacement, not just involving people, but also involving their culture, their language, their identity, um, is kind of overwhelming. And so it, it takes over a space and a people. And... For me, in my book, I use that sort of definition as a jumping off point to talk about how people of color become enmeshed in settler colonialism. And so often we only think of them as victims. Um, and, you know, rightly so, of course, uh, you know, Native American genocide is widely known. But after this kind of initial point where settlers have come in, um, settler colonialism in the process that I talk about means how are these indigenous people 
thinking about these changes um, and how are they making changes in their society. And so for the five tribes that I look at, people talk about how they begin to dress like Europeans. Um, they change their governance structures to become tripartite like the United States. Uh, they have lots of white men who marry into them. But when it comes to race, they're also beginning to accept ideas about black inferiority and about a racial hierarchy. And the way that kind of shapes their cultures is that they begin to own slaves. And also they begin to think of themselves as part of this racial hierarchy. And so if these five Indian nations are taking on these idea of civilization that Europeans have created and disseminated, um, they then begin to really kind of weaponize it. And so they use it against black people who they enslave and then use this sort of, sort of same rationalization that white people do. And they also use it against other native people to say, you are inferior to us because you are not like these kind of set things that Europeans have set out is civilized. And so I look at really, I call them waves, waves of people who come into Indian territory and use these ideas of civilization set out by white European settlers to justify their settlement. Um, and so the five tribes do it to the Western Indian people already living in Indian territory. Then their former slaves do it to the five tribes or former owners. Uh, then African-Americans and white Americans come into Indian territory and do it. And, and thank you for that framing too, because like I said, like I don't, you know, we want to make sure that this is uh, equitable for, for as many people to know um, so that when they come to the book, then they can better understand uh, what, what's, what's going on. And so you, before you had talked about um, archival collections, so let's make an archival turn real quick, too. Um, to stitch together, I've been here all the while. What archival collections did you most rely on for this particular project? Well, I mentioned the Dawes Rolls, and so those are really the core of my book, uh, the core of my dissertation, and really the beginning of my kind of journey to understanding my family history and thus myself. Um, and the Dawes Rolls and records are what were created by the Dawes Commission, um, a trio put together to divide and allot land in the late 1800s. And so these are white men who are talking to Native people and to Indian freed people, the former slaves of Indians, uh, to really kind of deduce who has lived in this space and therefore who deserves uh, to obtain land through this um, American process. And the people talk about uh, their family, their communities, um, and a lot of it is kind of the information about what they've been doing since the Civil War ended, but you also get a glimpse into how their slaveholders treated them and like what are the relationships that they have uh, with those people and with the broader Indian nations themselves. And so it's really illuminating and it's a body of sources that has predominantly been used previously only to study Native people. Um, and so I'm looking at from a different way, uh, from kind of the perspective of another marginalized group. Um, and then I also use National Archives records to kind of flesh out the correspondence between the five tribes and the federal government, and also Indian freed people and the federal government, um, which really makes it clear that they're using the United States as a mediator very strategically to try to get what they want. And it's very interesting for me personally that you said National Park Service because um, I actually used to work. Um, I, I helped get a program off the ground, um, the uh, African-American experience in the Smokies Project, where I actually lived in Cherokee, North Carolina, off and on for about two, about two and a half, almost, yeah, about two and a, two and a half years. And so um, 
you know, kind of seeing those. And I worked for the National Park Service for off and on for almost a decade. And so just learning about the history of the of the park and also uh, interviewing folks um, in the community at times and realizing everyone's relationship to the park, you know, the Great Smoky Mountains National Park, for instance, is not, you know, sterling. And so uh, just thinking about the kind of ways that people have used, like, well, I guess the, you know, the Department of the Interior just broadly um, really helped me to also think about my own experiences in Cherokee and some of the conversations that I had about race and uh, about uh, black people's, um, you know, about black people within uh, the the Cherokee Nation more broadly. Um, And so, you know, that was almost in a way one of the reasons why I actually wanted to reach out and talk to you about this book to help me to actually, although this is not necessarily about obviously the Cherokees per se, but um, to, to be in conversation with someone uh, that can that can help illuminate some things as someone who is not um, uh, of an of a native background, but uh, is very interested in in the ideas about Black folks and and interactions with land too. So um, so so yeah. Once again, I'm very excited about getting this uh, this episode out to the people um, as well and, and get people to read the book. So um, one of the things that that folks can already tell and and will definitely after they read the book is that your work engages many complicated and entangled subjects like Native and Black history, settler colonialism, and histories of slavery, and also citizenship rights, too. Um, so I'm very interested to know what your answer is to this one. Um, what are some of the biggest misconceptions popular audiences have about Indian freed people? There are two big ones. Uh, The first, if they know anything about slavery in Indian nations, is that uh, the slavery was like more benevolent. It was less harsh than that of Black people enslaved by white people. And that misconception, I think, first says a lot about what people want to think about Native people. Uh, They don't want to think of them as like slaveholders or especially bad slaveholders. Um, But also, that misconception is interesting to me because it you can see how it actually comes from the five tribes themselves um, who created it along with white reformers. And so um, there's a historian, actually, Natalie Joy, whose book I think should be coming out pretty soon, who looks at how white Americans trying to stop Indian removal um, are also often abolitionists. And so, you know, it's like, how are we going to help these slaveholding Indians and still kind of be okay with ourselves. And the solution um, is to act as though they're somehow different from white slaveholders. And it's better, it's easier to be a black slave living in an Indian nation, which of course they know is false. Um, And then the kind of related misconception is, I well, this is something I often hear um, among African Americans as well. The idea that Native Americans and African Americans like work together and form communities, and the Seminole Maroons are often what people kind of pick up in that vein. Um, And that, of course, is based on a true story. Uh, Yes, there were Black people who lived among the Seminoles. Yes, they did fight for freedom together. Um, But it's so much more complicated than that, and so much more nuanced. And that idea allows people to kind of think that this relationship was only positive and that it was kind of two people traumatized by white settlers and colonization who came together when in fact often colonization and white supremacy forces people of color apart 
Oh, yeah. And as someone who grew up in the state of Florida, who's, you know, one of the major uh, athletic programs is called the Florida State Seminoles. You hear all those kind of stories growing up, too, um, about, you know, especially northern Florida and, you know, uh, Jackson and, and, and the, you know, was it three Seminole Wars or so that that happened um, in, in Florida and leading up to uh, statehood. And so. So, yeah, so yeah, I, 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 I totally get it. And I've heard many of those as well. So, 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 so thank you for, for clearing that up for the people too, because, um, you know, I, I, I think it's also, I'm glad that you started with the preface of if they know anything at all, right. <laughs> if they know anything at all, um, as well, which I think is the, the, the best way to kind of, to kind of break it down. So, so, also, one of the more fascinating parts about your book is how you describe um, demographic change in, in Indian territory in the in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. So for those listeners that you that have not yet read your book, but will after this interview, of course, shout out to Pim Press. Um, what events spurred this demographic change and how did these changes alter the trajectory of the territory and the region's history? So widespread 19th century Western migration, both black and white, can be traced to the Homestead Act of 1862, the Dawes Act of 1887, and the various land runs that follow these. Uh, So the Homestead Act gives free land to any settler that can pay the registration fees and afford to provide their own startup costs. So it's, you know, not actually really free, but, um, and it's also not actually really free because it's taken from Native people. So it's not just like, land available for use. Uh, And that, of course, is also the case with the Dawes Act. The Dawes Act also forces people, uh, Native people, really off their land. um, And it stops them from landing, from owning land communally, uh, which is their tradition, and divides and allots that land. And then once they allot that land to individuals, then, of course, there's leftover land. And that leftover land can be conveniently settled on by white Americans. Um, And so this is where we kind of get the land runs that you used to see in old westerns this is where the oklahoma sooners get their name sooners were the people who did not even wait until land was officially open to them they like Whoa. literally illegally squatted on it and this is like celebrated Whoa, in a football team <laughs> okay i'm so sorry i i'm i'm a huge college football fan so the oklahoma sooners you know major major you know norman oklahoma uh shit i never knew this oh my gosh thank you wow so no sports fans come after me please but it's true (laughs) (laughs) so as these people arrive in indian territory uh some of them do live peacefully near the native and black people already there but most of them cause havoc uh they create crime they're allow allow their livestock to ravage native farms and lots of things like that. Um, and then when tribal governments ask the United States to remove these settlers, um, as they're supposed to, they don't. And so this large amount of settlers, predominantly white settlers, really leads to um, Oklahoma territory because settlers start pushing for laws that favor them. And uh, then that's how we essentially get the state of Oklahoma. And so this changes this space of tribal sovereignty that was always supposed to be a space of tribal sovereignty to another American state. Goodness. See, this this is important because, like I said, like many, many Americans every Saturday watch college sports or watch sports in general or know about um, even if they're not a fan, they'll, you know, just just by living in certain places, you'll know. Um, but no, this is this is great information. And um, and also, you know, it makes me think, too. So I actually um, 
you know, I, I think I told you uh, before, uh, you know, I'd worked with the National Park Service. And one of the actual places I worked in was actually Fort Scott National Historic Site in Fort Scott, Kansas. And so, you know, in terms of like, you know, migrations and movements, that was, you know, and obviously like Nicodemus and such. Um, and so, you know, once again, like reading your book helped me to also understand um, the glimpses where the Civil War history comes in, the Reconstruction history um, come in, and also to help me understand where the intersections of Black and Indigenous histories are, but also in particular, African Americans coming in from Tennessee or Mississippi or, you know, some of the other, um, not every time, but oftentimes, you know, those, you know, South, quote unquote, Southwestern uh, Southern states um, coming into a place like Oklahoma or what became Oklahoma. Um, and so one of the things that I also found interesting about your book was the role of imagination. And so at least in my reading of your work, imagination plays a major role in how African-Americans and also white settlers imagine what was was there, although they had never actually been there. Right. Mm -hmm. So so can you actually talk a bit um, and elaborate more about the role that imagination played in 19th century black political projects for freedom? Um, and, and, and how Indian territory, uh, was, um, was imagined within that, was, was imagined rather in that frame. Yeah. So it's, it's funny that even though I think I could still say most Americans today don't know the history of Indian territory back in the late 19th century, it was a space that so many people, especially African-Americans talked about. And so black newspapers are full of editorials about, the black people who are receiving land or receiving payments in Indian territory and what that means for their economic prospects. And also what that might mean for African-Americans who are living in the South and who have just been emancipated and who are thinking about where can I make a life? And, uh, you know, my uh, former slaveholder or the white guy down the street is like really violent and we can't trust him. And so, you know, should we move? And so they're looking toward the West, but Indian territory especially sticks out as a space of possibility because they already know that there are people, Black people, living successful lives there. And they know that there is kind of not the same framework of white supremacy. Um, and that's because of tribal sovereignty. And so, yes, Native Americans are not, uh, you know, like, not racist at all. There is not like a racial paradise occurring, but still there are possibilities open there because of tribal governments that have been forced by the United States to allow citizenship. And so this kind of allowance goes on and you have black people serving on juries and serving in um, political positions and uh, opening businesses and things in Indian territory into the 1880s, into the 1890s, right up until Oklahoma statehood, because there is just a difference in kind of the political and social possibilities. Yeah. And, and it also makes you think about um, really how even when you have folks that are moving out to places like, you know, like a Nicodemus or um, places, you know, I think it was a, a Bowley, I think was one of the major uh, towns, is that they're moving because they're fleeing something oftentimes, right, in terms of the racial violence and, you know, because of maybe preconceived notions, they might have thought, I can create a new uh, a, a new 
world for myself in this unvarnished space, right? But clearly that takes away the people and, and the violence that, that led to, right? Obviously with the quote unquote trailer tears, but you know, what happened once, you know, uh, uh, Indian or once African American, oh, once um, uh, Indian free people got there, um, eventually it's like they dealt with, with stuff too. And so I, I think one of the good things about your book is just the, that enslavement occurred by European and, you know, and indigenous peoples as well. Um, and, you know, that, that's, that's history. That's literal history. Um, and that there are people today that are um, still dealing with the legacies of that, right? And we'll get to more of that um, here in these next few questions. And so, with that being said, moving to the contemporary, um, by reading and or hearing about recent U.S. Supreme Court cases, and also one of my favorite podcasts, This Land, from uh, I believe Cherokee citizen uh, Rebecca Nagel, um, many of the issues you, you discuss in your book are playing out publicly and making national news, um, or at least the news that I've been seeing on the national news. So, you know, take that for what you want. Um, I'm always on the Twitter, so that's how I get my news oftentimes. But, um, so with that, um, what are some of the main issues um, Afro-Native peoples face today? And how are those issues underpinned by the histories you bring to bear in I've Been Here All the While? Well, yes, as you say, it has been on national national news. Um, I mean, New York Times, I think, counts, right? Uh, and it's been wild. Like, to, <laughs> <This is true. laughs> for what I study, to suddenly be such a topic of conversation, because I am just used to no one even having an idea what Indian territory means. Uh, and so even though my book doesn't focus on Black citizenship and the five tribes, the undercurrent is certainly about belonging, how different groups of people define and fight for belonging. And today, I feel that so many more people are now aware of Afro-Native people's long fight for the belonging that they're owed, the citizenship that they're owed through treaties. Like, it's literally it's literally legal there, legally there. Um, and yet the Cherokee Nation is currently the only nation, a uh, former slaveholding nation, that treats Black Cherokees the same as other Cherokees, um, often who have white ancestry. And uh, I think probably the most blatant example of mistreatment is the Seminole freed people who were turned away at their nation's Indian Health Service clinic. And this is life or death discrimination. Like literally this is someone's life. Um, and now that American voting I think is uh, clearly in such a disarray, maybe it's easier for people to recognize what it means that Black people in these Indian nations cannot vote. And they kind of see more starkly this discrimination um, and what it means that these people are not considered full citizens. And so, I mean, I cannot uh, apply for citizenship in the Choctaw or Chickasaw nations, even though um, my ancestors were owned by these people, are on these roles, and are supposed to have this right. And, you know, yes, it's important kind of symbolically for me, identity-wise. Uh, it was very important for uh, some of the people that I talk about in my book, like especially my second cousin, Travis. He so wanted to be enrolled, and it would have meant so much to him personally. But also there are practical things like health service, like scholarships, just things that we are supposed to have um, opportunity to apply for, at least. And that has not been available to us. And and this question comes from just you know, literally seeing um, so many 
Um, and, and also, also interestingly enough, um, running parallel to the hundredth quote unquote, um, commemor or the hundredth commemoration of the, the Tulsa, uh, race massacre as well, which comes up in your book too. So it's almost like a convergence of violences, right? The violence of the literal massacre, but the, also the, the contemporary violences of not being an enrolled member and what that ultimately leads you not to in, in a pandemic, right? And you're talking about life or death, not being able to receive certain health services. Um, and so with the commemoration in mind, can you also talk about how your book also discusses the convergences of of uh, uh, Afro Native history, and also in particular the particular history of of uh, the Tulsa uh, race massacre, which you say is a massacre as opposed to a riot that you know previous uh, generations might have called it. Right. Uh, yeah, I am very appreciative of the fact that I think journalists um, and everyday people are starting to use that term massacre instead of race riot, which kind of implies it was like an equal sides kind of fight when in fact it was, you know, white people destroying black property and black lives. Um, and so my book looks at the Tulsa massacre as really kind of the culmination of all of these different people buying into settler colonialism and using it strategically because um, obviously, Black and Native people are doing this to survive, to better their lives. But ultimately, even though the United States kind of favors some of these Native people and Black people for its own ends, it's always white people who triumph, right? The, the state is for white settlers. And the Tulsa massacre is really kind of evidence that even though these Black and Native people built themselves up, like literally pulled themselves up by their bootstraps from nothing and created things, uh, and not just economically, but also social lives, uh, political lives uh, that were destroyed and no one ever paid for it. And still no one has paid for it. Like even with the 100th anniversary, I thought, finally, maybe there will be like some sort of reparations. No, still no. Yeah. And, you know, and and I've been watching, you know, like the podcast mill, which, you know, one of the I think the good parts about podcasts is especially the longer form is that you can get a you can get a lot more long durée kind of story within a multi episode set as opposed to um, simply just a single, you know, 45 minute thing. And, and, and I bring that up because, you know, I was listening to stories of folks who, like you just said, you thought hundred years and also the money that's coming in the money that's pouring into the city of people traveling right to visit right as almost like an end although they're not from there almost like an ancestral mm. right memory that is bringing folks in and so the city is benefiting but are the descendants of the massacre or or, or the massacred right and that's not even just death right because and i think um, Dr. Uh, Thavolia Glyph talks about this with the Civil War, where if we only talk about the the actual soldier deaths at, you know, I don't know, 600, I don't know what the current number is, 600,000 or whatever it is, then it obfuscates the many more people who died as a result, right, who were just regular folk or whose death later on can be derived directly to the civil war and i can also see that within the frame of the massacre where you might not have died on the day but maybe from grief or other um aspects of even you see this with 9 11 where um inhalation of smoke when bombs are being dropped right 
And so um, the more internal, longer forms of death as well. So so that's why for me, um, you're the the final part of your book is interesting but before we switch out towards more just writerly kind of questions one of the biggest parts about your book is also the way that you describe reconstruction and how reconstruction in your in your work in in the american west is actually longer than what typically historians discuss so because i ain't write it and i want to hear the author talk about it can you talk about your 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 discussion of reconstruction in, in the west yes so when i say african americans from the south are looking at indian territory and saying you know look their lives seem to be better than ours maybe we should go um this is because the federal government is still kind of ensuring black rights in indian territory where they had you know, more or less left African-Americans in the South to their own devices. Obviously, people um, have argued about, you know, when Reconstruction technically ends in the South, when our troops pulled out, people like Greg Downs say it's actually longer. Um, But the United States has kind of a, let's see, they benefit from helping Black people in Indian Territory obtain land because that's less land for Native people. That also gives uh, the United States kind of more they see it as a right to then come in. Um, But it's also about the kinds of rights and lives that Black people in Indian Territory have into and leading up to Oklahoma statehood. And so it's, it's about federal backing, and it's also kind of about the opportunities and the voting rights and the status and opportunities Okay, I said opportunities twice, (laughs) that they have in Indian territory. Um, And so I look at it as a longer reconstruction period because it does have both of those things, the federal backing and the difference in Black life. And that's important because, like, when we have our histories of reconstruction, you know, and, and it's also interesting because now that um, you know, I post jobs every day. And it's always interesting looking at how the categorization and, and such go, right? Are you are you doing a class where, you know, U.S. history is up to 1877? There's a reason why they choose 1877, right? That That's a reconstruction cap. But <laughs> when they start teaching, I've been here all the while, they're going to have to extend that to right around, was it 1907, early, early 20th century or so? 1907. Um, <laughs> but 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 it's important because what it does is helps um us better understand that um about about territorial claims right and and i'm sure um, i know you've heard this a million times but i can't tell you how many times i've seen um i think it was um and, th- and this is when the oil um is 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 being quote-unquote discovered underneath um uh, land and i forget the young lady's name but it was a, a young black girl uh, you know i see some of these um I see some of these black history memes every now and again. Sarah Richter? Yes, yes, yes. It must be her. That that name sounds so. So, can you tell us about her? And I only say that because I've heard about her name so much in connection to kind of like you know the black wealth and kind of like what is undergirding the Black Wall Street thing is you know capitalism and all that. So, so can you tell the people about her her particular story too? Yeah, so Sarah Rector uh, was a young black girl who uh, was a 
former, well, her parents were the former slaves of Creek Indians, and so they got their allotment. Um, and on her allotment, there happened to be a mass amount of oil. Um, the people like her who were children and or had parents who were deemed to be unable to kind of uh, guard and take care of this kind of wealth um, had guardians that were assigned to them by the U.S. government. And this is a little paternalistic, but it does end up saving some of these people who do have good guardians who actually take care of them. And so her guardian does allot her a certain amount of money every year. And so she has, you know, nicer shoes. She has the ability to buy houses, uh, cars. Um, she does become educated. And this is, I think, as you said, kind of symbolic of the wealth that oil brings to Black Wall Street, not just because of the oil itself, but also because the population booms, people are moving in, uh, people are investing in real estate, creating things like rooming houses that allow uh, other Black people to live there, and really kind of creating a space of you know, black excellence, black capitalism. Um, obviously, it's, you know, up to you to decide whether or not that's good, but um, it certainly doesn't get rid of discrimination or prejudice. And that's obvious with the Tulsa massacre, right? Like, it doesn't matter how much wealth these black people have. Ultimately, they can't make the state or the city uh, protect them. And that's, a, and that's a, an important piece to know, too, because, you know, and that has contemporary resonance in terms of how people um, today think about um uh, i remember growing up uh, every year in the spring um uh, my mom and my brother and i we would always watch c-span uh was it the not the, was it the covenant with black america or the the uh the thing that um tavis smiley and tom jordan and all them would do every year and you and, and it's kind of like looking back in a way it is wild to actually think about the 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 different figures in in you know in black america uh, you have someone, Louis Farrakhan with Cornell West and, you know, Suzanne Malveaux and all these disparate, you know, uh, Jeremiah Wright, you know, um, who who's Lord. Oh, my gosh. People thought that dude was a boogeyman or something like that about 13 years ago. But um, but but yeah, just just interesting, because then you get to see kind of like the convergences of what do black people, you know, like, you know, every now and again, you ask, what do black people want, you know, in terms of, you know, rights, and then you get to see where black capitalism and, and oftentimes, maybe not in those conversations, but what is underpinning all that is 1921, right, is, you know, black Wall Street and, uh, and Durham, you know, the, the different black Wall Streets that that peppered um, the uh, oftentimes the, the South, interestingly enough. And so, um, it, it's been great talking to you about all these different topics too, because, um, I know folks are going to go read the book and engage the work. Um, because, uh, you know, and, and I also want to say this reading your work made me even happier that I read Quintard Taylor's work mm -hmm. as well. So, so, um, you know, was it, I think was it, wasn't he the one who started black past? Um, uh, I think it was black or one of the, so. Yeah, I, I, there's like there's different ones, but I think he was Black Pass. But um, because there was a moment when I thought that I wanted to do like black folks in the in in the West, like in well in the uh in the North American West, and it was reading his book while I was while I interned at Fort Scott National Historic Site, and I had actually bought his book at um uh the 
the I forget the the full name, but effectively the the Topeka, um, the Topeka's uh, National Park, um, indebted to the Brown v. Board. And I remember buying that book. I've read that book in like two days because not because it was short, but because I was so focused and the book was so so damn good and and illuminating. Um, but what it did was reminded me about black folks involvement in the project of the West. And also, and it's also the irony on, uh, in certain ways, uh, with Colin Powell die, dying, right. A particularly embattled figure, um, not forced, of course, we, we ain't saying he forced, uh, the embattling, yeah. but you know, you know, it's very, very different there, but to kind of use his words and use his own life and also what he actually did and to allow to also think about you know buffalo soldiers you know what were they doing out in the west right some of also the first national park rangers were folks out there as well right in the sequoia and and other places and so um your book also helps us to also think about the different roles that black people played in projects of of colonialism as well settler colonialism and so um, we've talked about this. So so let's talk about the person behind the book a little more. Let's talk about your philosophies a, a little bit before we get out of here. Some some fun questions. So first one, what excites you most about the work you do as a writer, historian, scholar, and public thinker? Everything. I mean... As someone who did not want to be a professor necessarily uh, when I went to graduate school and even when I was on the job market the first two years, it's been really amazing to see how much I've grown to love teaching, grown to love writing uh, for academic audiences and also for the mainstream public. And I can't believe that I get to like, I have the freedom to write about what I want, like what I find interesting and what I'm passionate about. And that's amazing. I'm I'm just so glad like that it turned out that I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. And that and that's great too because one of the cool things is um, hearing uh, well reading from and, and hearing you during the interview talk about uh, the opportunities to interview family members um, as well and and what that also means as your role in your family as a keeper of you know the history which is. Uh, a very um, African diasporic um, sensibility as well, and so so that's that is something that I also see um, within the book, and, and also you know I say public thinker uh, because I also see your work out here, uh, you know, in the public sphere and, and some of the talks, and um, and I and I say that because to get ready for these interviews, I also you know try to try to listen to and, and read um, so, some of the things that that folks had done before. Uh, so I don't like asking uh, same questions. You know, we try to do things a little different over here in New Books and African American Studies. Um, and so, um, listeners will probably recognize this question, uh, but very interested to hear your question, your answer on this one. If you had all the money you needed, all the money in the world, right, blank check, to build your own writing, reading, and thinking space, what would it look like, sound like, and smell like? Paint the picture for the listeners. <laughs> well, I am hopefully kind of creating my dream space right now. I'm building a house. Uh, oh, and I'm, I'm going to have a pretty big office there. It has big windows, which are important to me. Uh, as I wrote this book, 
looking out the window was important, like when I was stuck on a paragraph or something. Um, so I'm going to have a road that isn't super busy, but there is like action. There are some cars going by uh, at times, which is important. Um, what does it smell like? Oh, I'm a candy fiend, so there's going to be candy. Um, <laughs> I eat my breakfast and my lunch in my office, and my um, partner is amazing. He makes me breakfast, so I always have that in my office. That's the smell, eggs in the morning. Shout out to him. Uh, and then lots of bookshelves, and um, I don't know how I'm going to decorate it. Probably like pictures, um, maybe some awards, who knows? <laughs> hey, there we go. Speaking into existence. So I don't Good need deal. much, but I just need windows and a desk. Windows. So, so are you someone who? Because I, I, I've seen people um, play around with this during, um, especially during the pandemic, and you know, 2019. I was one of those people that said, I don't know how people can work from home. I got to be at a coffee shop. I need, I need like, I need all of that. And then March 2020 hits, and I'm like. Lord of mercy, what am I going to do? So then I had to convert some things. I, I I had to be converted. I was forced into my conversion here. But but I like it now. And so so are you someone who, um, in terms of your desk, are you a stand-up desk person? Are you, you know, because I, I've seen a lot of people have that. You know, what's, um, you know, are you the deep wood? Like, you know, got to have bookshelves everywhere as well? Hmm. Uh, right now I have like a shiny chrome desk, which may or may not make the move with me. I haven't decided yet. Um, gotcha. But I, I also have like black bookshelves that are kind of more art deco-y. So nice. my home workspace is super important to me. Um, and my office like at work um, is actually very sparse while a lot of my colleagues hmm. work in their offices. And so they have like really nice places and I just have a place where I go to sit before class <laughs> no that's for real no that, that that's 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 key because if you if you're gonna have to write these other books and articles and you know take these interviews and such you, you need and and also eat two meals a day in there as well uh <laughs> you need to you know you need to accentuate it to, to all your tastes here so um so so here's the thing this is our last one and i love music right so because I rarely work long stretches without music playing, I wondered if you could curate a playlist based on I've been here all the while, what 10 songs would go in said playlist? Well, this was such a difficult question, especially because I feel like my book is kind of sad. I mean, certainly the ending is kind of sad. Um, so I didn't want to just say like all sad songs. Uh, so I'm like a kind of like an oldies person, um, for sure. So when I think of the people who are emancipated and they just, you know, get up and go and they're working toward their dreams, I think of something like the impressions keep on pushing and then Curtis Mayfield, we're a winner. Um, so moving on up, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um, we have to have some like protest songs uh, because people are fighting for land rights. Um, so I was thinking Marvin Gaye, what's going on? Classic. Uh, Classic. Migration is really important to my book. So Stevie Wonder, who's my favorite artist of all time, Traveling mm. Man. And then for a little more upbeat song, Edwin Starr, 25 Miles. Yes. Um, and then I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of like in a little short. Um, I didn't make ten. It's all good. It's all good. It's all I would good. end with 
the freed people who are trying to kind of make it work with the U.S. government, trying to get all they can. Uh, Stevie Wonder, we can work it out. Amen to that. Awesome. Awesome. A great list. And, uh, you know, the, the cool thing about this kind of question, it helps us also think about the the ways, not the ways in which, but how um, we can <laughs> use. <laughs> I'm sorry, every single time I, I, I say ways in which, but it's always funny because I, I see people with memes always be like, ways in which, how, yeah. ways in which, how, ways in which, how. And so anytime I always, I always like get that in my head, but, um, but uh, it, it's, it's, I was actually thinking about this yesterday when I heard someone say it, I was like, where did this come from? I, I'm not one of these, like, everyone needs to write a paper on it, but I literally want to know, who was the person 50, 10, 1,000 years ago? Did Herodotus say it? I, I don't I don't know. Like, who, who was the first person to say it? Because it's, it used, it's used so much, but I, I, you know, I digress. But nevertheless, I enjoyed this conversation. I love hearing your answers to the questions and also your 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 the 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 way you accentuate your your space um the one that you have here and the one that you are literally building um so congratulations on that too that is that is an amazing awesome feat um i don't know if it pales in comparison to this amazing book and what you have coming up but uh but i'm sure you you, you know you put all the all the love into it that you put into this book i'm sure it's going to be an amazing space um so, Dr. Roberts, it has been an amazing opportunity to talk to you today. It's, I believe, if I remember my emails correctly, been about a year in the making, give or take. And it's so, been a while, um, yeah. It, it's been a minute. It's been a minute. Um, so, I'm glad that, you know, we were able to come here on today. Uh, I don't know how it is where you are, but looking out this window, it's a nice, nice day. Got the got the leaves changing here in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Um and I really hope that you have a great rest of your semester. And and y'all, please, please, please go get uh, Dr. Roberts' amazing book. I've been here all the while, Black Freedom on Native Land. And please rate us and review us wherever you get your podcasts, New Books in African American Studies. And for the 91st time, y'all, over and out.